All right, we'll ask you to turn in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. We are in chapter 2 this morning, continuing in uh, the study of this minor prophets. Minor only because of what? It's a small book. Um, in fact, today we are going to find um, what you might call the linchpin verse in all of Scripture. Uh, in chapter 2. So, um, but before we get there, uh, would you stand with me as we read God's word? Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to read verses 2 through 5 this morning. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be at work right now, right here in this place. Lord, speak to us through your word. May our hearts become alive at the word that you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 5, the subheading, The righteous shall live by his faith. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens To the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now, last week I asked for a, um, a, a quick show of hands uh, to see who had some experience wrestling uh, in the congregation. Uh, not last week, sorry, two weeks ago, and I think that you probably have learned now to be hesitant when you raise your hand uh, in the service. But so you might recall that Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk comes from the word for embrace, right? Embrace. And so Habakkuk is embracing the Lord like a wrestler coming right at God face to face with his hard questions. And in Habakkuk, as he does so, he has full confidence in God's holy character and his divine nature. And yet, as he looks at the world, he doesn't understand what God was saying was about to happen to his people. Because the Lord had said, hey, I'm going to use the the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, to come and to bring judgment upon his people. And and to to Habakkuk's mind, that doesn't compute at all. This, This doesn't make sense. See, these were a powerful, a violent, a proud, a thoroughly pagan nation who did not worship the Lord who worshiped idols that they had made. They captured people from foreign nations and they brought them into their land as servants and slaves. They did not behave morally. They showed no mercy. And they lived lavishly off the spoils of their conquests. And so Habakkuk says, I don't understand. None of this makes any sense. And he he comes face to face with God with these bold accusations, wondering how God could allow the wicked to flourish, and the righteous to perish. 
And then, as we learned last week, then he goes back to his watch post, and he climbs the tower, and he waits to see how God is going to answer him. See, Habakkuk has a bold faith, a faith that is strong enough to take his problems not into his own hands, but to bring them before the Lord with the expectation that God was strong enough to, to handle his questions. It's a, it's a faith that says, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I'm still going to watch and to wait to see what is going to happen. And as Randy shared last week, you know, Habakkuk joins a long list of people in Scripture who find themselves in the situation of believing in God, yet are forced to wait to see the fulfillment of the promises of God. You know, has anyone in here ever been in the shoes of Habakkuk where you're just forced to wait and to hope on things that you don't understand? I'm not going to ask you to answer that out loud, but at least somebody besides myself, hopefully. You now, if you're a parent, sorry, let me get there in just a second. As, as Habakkuk waits, he does so, again, with the full expectation that God is going to answer. Now, is this going to be an answer that he likes? Is this going to be something that he agrees with? I don't think that he believes that he is going to like it. I get the feeling that he thinks God might say something along the lines of, you know what, Habakkuk, you were right. I'm sorry I messed up here. I'm going to do better next time. And if you've been a parent, if you are a parent, if you, you've been in those shoes, haven't you? Where you've been forced to come to your kids at some point and say, you know what, I, I did that to you. That was too much, too fast, too quick, too much expectation, and I am so sorry. Right? If you're a parent, you've been hopefully in those shoes. If you've never said those words before as a parent, then you probably ought to go and say them to your kids uh, today. If you've never apologized, a good way to start is apologize for not apologizing. If you're married and you haven't apologized to your spouse recently, this is a good time. Like right now, you should probably turn to your, your spouse and say, I'm sorry that I haven't said sorry recently. You can do that. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's a sign of spiritual and emotional maturity is continual repentance and continual apology, continual acknowledgement that we are not who we need to be. And yet God is not like us, is he? See, God doesn't have to apologize to Habakkuk for anything because God does not make mistakes. His actions are perfect. His plans are perfect. His holiness is what? Somebody say perfect. Thank you. The truth is that God doesn't really owe us any explanations at all for the things that he does. In fact, if God had not answered Habakkuk at all, nothing about his perfect nature or his perfect character would have been compromised. He would still be the holy, holy, holy God, perfect in all of his ways towards humanity. But that's not what happens here. The Lord... Yahweh, the I am, answers. And his answer is not just for Habakkuk. His answer is for all people. 
not just in the day of Habakkuk, but also for all of the days to come until there will be no more days. See, in fact, God's response was something far greater than Habakkuk could have ever hoped or dreamed or imagined, something that centuries later the Apostle Paul would be pointing to as evidence of God's perfect eternal design, and then centuries after that, as Randy's going to get into next week, that the great reformers like Luther and Calvin and Knox and Spurgeon would once again rediscover and then reinterpret towards the church of Jesus. And so what is it that God says to Habakkuk? Well, starting in verse 2, he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Hey, this word, this simple truth has to be known to everybody. This is not a secret. This isn't something that you're going to keep to yourself. So there's many different secret religions and secret societies and secret wisdom. This message is not one of those things. This is not it. Take it. Embrace it. Share it. Make it plain. Don't hide it. In fact, those who are running by should be able to read it and then continue to run on with that message. How many of you noticed the the message that was outside on the corner either yesterday or today from the church? So we had the Liz Hurley ribbon run. And there's a banner up which says, keep going. And then it, it quotes Isaiah 40, 31. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. This was a message to those who were running in a race. This was a message to those who were struggling with cancer. Then keep going, right? Not just in this race and not just in your fight with breast cancer, but keep going in your faith. Don't stop hoping. Hope in God. Don't hope in yourself. He will renew, he will restore, he will make you soar. Keep going, keep, keep hoping in God. Right? And so that's the type of message that Habakkuk is supposed to share. Put this somewhere where people can see it and they can take it with them and this is going to be the air in their wings as they go. Because this is the essential message of Scripture. What, what is that message we're getting there? He says that the vision awaits its appointed time. Right? If it seems slow, keep waiting on it. See, God, his, God is telling his people that his message is true regardless of their experience in the moment, regardless of what, what is about to happen. See, God had warned them ahead of time, right? He was in his mercy, told them, you are going to be conquered. You're going to experience pain. You're going to be, experience suffering at the hands of this pagan nation. It's going to seem like that you're going to have every reason in the world to doubt my goodness, to doubt my truthfulness. But the truth is that even in the midst of their suffering, God is providing them an opportunity to turn to him. See, it seems slow, but this truth is now and forever. And the truth is, part of this truth is that the proud man has a soul that is puffed up. It's artificially swollen. It's not right or true. The proud man is a deceiver, but the one The only one that he has truly deceived is who? Is himself. Who are the proud? Well, it wasn't just the Babylonians. So the people of Habakkuk's time were proud of their faith heritage, and they believed that they were the righteous people 
based on comparison of their behavior to the behavior of their neighbors. Say, hey, we might not be a perfect people, but when you you look at us and then you look at them, you're going to see we're pretty good. That was the same game that the Pharisees played when Jesus was walking around in Galilee. Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 18. He says, he told this also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee went, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here was a a typical prayer of a rabbi, of a Pharisee in the first century. In fact, A typical prayer would have went something like this. Blessed are you, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's what a priest would pray. Blessed are you, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Thank you for my race. Thank you for my economic status. And thank you for the gender that you have given to me. I have no choice in any of this. But thank you for making me obviously superior to everyone around me. How many of you pray that prayer this morning? (laughs) But then in the parable that Jesus tells, this particular guy takes things even further. Not only am I not like those unholy people, the unjust, the adulterer, the tax collector, a woman or a Gentile, but, but here are the things that I do for God. Thank you, God, that I'm so good to you. I fast two times a week. I tithe off of everything I get. Even we saw the Pharisees, the dill, the mint, the cumin, they're tithing out of their spice garden. Thank you, God, that I am so awesome for you. Have you prayed that prayer? Probably not out loud. You might have thought it. I know I have. But the comparison game does nothing, nothing compared to a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Our good deeds done in our own strength, without faith, are considered by God, he says in Isaiah, to be more disgusting than polluted garments or filthy rags. And if that's how God sees my righteous deeds, how does he see my sin? As we saw in chapter 1, his eyes are so pure that he cannot look upon evil or wrong. He turns his face away from the unrighteous. But, but, okay, so that's all the bad news. Right, but here is the good news. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, if you're, you're, you've probably heard this term before. Again, this is the phrase. The righteous shall live by his faith. What is righteousness? Well, righteous is goodness. 
The righteous are those who are counted worthy to stand before God. And if you're asking the question, well, who is righteous? The Bible tells us the answer is nobody. Congratulations. You didn't do it. Right? No one is righteous, not even one. We find this in Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalms chapter 14. There is not one who is good, not even a single one. Right? And so, so how can we find this, this righteousness, this goodness? The righteous are those who are counted worthy to stand before God, and the reality is that none of us can do this. Not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own ability. We can't attain perfection no matter how hard we try. See, one of two things happen when we try in our strength to become righteous. We either become puffed up and, and become conceited, or we grow discouraged and defeated. That's the only two options, right? You become so full of yourself that you come before God with like this fool of a Pharisee, or you become so discouraged and so defeated that you run and flee, thinking God can't do anything for me. See, we either believe that we deserve God's favor or we know we can never attain it, and then we just walk away. Those are the only two options we have in our strength. And yet, what will the righteous do? They will live. They will live by faith. What does it mean to live? Life today, life tomorrow, life forever, here and now and all the way into eternity. And how do they have that life? How do they obtain it? It is through their faith. And what is faith? Well, we read it already in Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for. The conviction of things that we cannot see. It's complete trust and hope in something that we can't see. I'm going to diverge for just a moment. Randy and I were in Colorado this week. Colorado Springs. We're part of a church planters retreat. We, we, we cooked a lot of delicious food for a lot of very hungry church planters. And that was sort of our role. And we got to be a part of conversations about what that's looking like in our denomination. Well, when, uh, Tuesday evening, as I'm getting ready to, to wrap things up, go to bed around the fire, a, a, a friend, a pastor of mine at about 10.30 p.m. says, Hey, does anybody want to go with me tomorrow to hike Pike's Peak? I'm leaving at 4.30 in the morning. Who's with me? Okay, and I, hey, that sounds great. Okay, I, you know, I, I run five miles a couple times a week. Hiking Pikes Peak, how difficult can that be? Clearly, you've done your research. Clearly, you know what we're doing. He's got a trail figured, figured out. He's got the path. He knows everything. And, and he had a lot of faith. If you're a hiker, anybody a hiker? Okay, you, there's, there's an app called All Trails where people hike different trails and then they post reviews about how hard things are or what you can do. And, and so he'd read the all trails of this, of this hike. You know, there's two different ways to get up Pikes Peak. There's one that's like 13 miles and the other one's about seven. And we thought, oh, we can do the seven-mile one. That's going to be a, a whole lot easier, right? Um, yeah, that's what I thought. And so the next morning, I went to bed a little after midnight. I woke up about 4.30. I'm, re- I'm getting in the car at 5 o'clock. We drive an hour to the parking lots. And as we're driving, I notice that we are driving past the road that goes up to Pikes Peak. And then we drive another 45 minutes to where we're going to park. And it's 6 o'clock in the morning. We are on the back side of the mountain 
The sun rises at seven. You're thinking, well, surely they were prepared, these hikers, right? They knew what they were doing. They must have had some water. They must have had some food. They must have been very well equipped. Here's what we were using as a flashlight. Just one, because my friend had forgot to charge his phone the night before. He had been planning to go himself. You can see how, how ill-advised this was, right? And so we're using this as a flashlight. We pull into the parking lot, and the first thing we encounter is a sign that says, Danger, moose in the area, they will attack. And if they do, that's, this is just the beginning of the story, Okay. If they do, you have two options. You climb a tree or you run away. If you fight them, you will die, okay? Now, that's great news to somebody who's about to step into a forest where you can look up and see more skies and you've ever, more stars than you've ever seen before, and this is your only light on the trail in front of you for the first 90 minutes of our hike, starting a little above 9,000 feet. And we're the only people there, of course, because who else would start a hike in darkness? And we continue on, and oh, you know, as we're going there, I said, how much research did you do? Oh, it should be fine. You know, if we can't make it all the way to the top, we can just hitch a ride, and, and, they'll, and they'll take us back down to our car. And I go, Matt, there's not a road here. <laughs> well, if we, as long as we make it up to Devil's Playground, if you've ever been up to, to Pikes Peak, Devil's Playground is about 13,000 feet. Remember, we started at 9,000. It takes us three hours to get up to Devil's Playground. And now we can actually see the visitor center at the top of Pikes Peak. But the problem is that's another 1,000 feet of elevation and another two miles of our trail. It took us two more hours to make that last two miles. Uh, we made an inadvertent phone call to Megan in the midst of this so she can vouch for some of what we are talking about, but, you know, once you get up to a certain elevation, every step becomes much more difficult. You're, you're, there's 40% less oxygen at, at 14,000 feet than there is here. And so you're carrying a backpack, and your arms start to get all tingly for the lack of oxygen in your body, and then every step becomes much more difficult. At one point, I took a step, and I kind of missed my and I just rolled, okay? I just fell over. Didn't even try to stop myself because I thought, that's too much effort. <laughs> and I'm just going to lay here for a minute, catch my breath. You know, that last, oh, yeah, the last two miles was all scrambling over boulders as well, right? The most difficult part, the temperature has now dropped about 20 degrees, so it's under 30. The wind is blowing and howling. We got to the top. Great job. Five hours it took us. We thought this was five hours up and back. My faith was in my ability to do this easily because of what I had been able to do down here at 400 feet and not up there at 14,000 feet. His faith was in his ability to properly interpret an all-trails map and to see that, oh, when trails connect together, you have to add those mileages and not just think that, you know, he thought we can go up and back in five hours, and there were five hours, and we're done. We're at the top. We made it. But there's a problem. How do you get back down? Fortunately, there's a train at the top of Pikes Peak. Did you know this? And you can ride the train back down to the bottom of the mountain. Guess where it takes you? To the road, which is an hour from your car. <laughs> Driving. 
Okay, uh, so we took the hour and a half train ride back down. I'm still here, so I'm alive, and you don't have to worry about this. But again, what happens when our faith is in the wrong things? Is your faith in the research? Is your faith in your profession? Is your faith in your degree? Is your faith in your intelligence? Is your faith in your ability to work harder than anybody else? Well, guess what? That gets you no closer to the righteousness of God than anyone. See, when my faith is in the wrong things, then bad things happen. When my faith is in my ability and my power and my strength, and I'm in danger of missing out on life. Right, scripture is full of warning about missing out on life. And the message of Habakkuk, the message of all of Scripture is simply this. The only, 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 only way to righteousness and the only way to life and the only way to him is through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. See, please don't hear me say this morning, you need to work harder and try better and have stronger faith. And why is that? It's because faith is a gift of God. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, faith in God is a free gift. This is something that's never earned. It's never deserved. And faith leads us to the end of ourselves. John Calvin says this, that, that this kind of faith is a faith that strips us of all arrogance. And it leads us naked and needy to God. That we may seek salvation from him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us. And Habakkuk says there's only two ways to live. Right? The one is to live by having faith in yourself, and the other is to live by having faith in God. And in having faith in ourselves and having faith in God, both say, hey, look what I've done. But there's this huge distinction. Having faith in yourself says, look what I do for God. I am so awesome. And saving faith says, look what I have done. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Saving faith says, look what God did for me. Self-faith says, look what I do for God. The Pharisee put his faith in himself and his status and his morals and his behavior. And what are the things that we put our faith in? And what happens when we choose to live not by faith in God, but, but by faith in ourselves? Well, we get that answer in verse 5. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, that's hell. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. See, this is our natural condition, our natural state. These are the things that we place our hope in. And in this type of faith, faith in self, can only lead to one place, which is death. And so we might be asking at times in our lives, and we might look out at, the, at things that are going on, and we might be wondering, why isn't God acting now? Why isn't he doing something about my circumstance? Why isn't he doing something about this situation? Why is he allowing this thing to go on? And the very clear answer is that God desires not just good things for us, but he desires the very best for us. That no one should perish, that all might repent 
and put their faith in Jesus. God is patient towards us. He is allowing us the opportunity to repent and believe. Second Peter 3 says this, don't overlook the fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is patient towards us, allowing us the opportunity to see that when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our pride, like the Babylonians, or the end of the wine box, like the lost son, or the end of our wealth, like that rich young ruler, when we come to the end of our power over every attempt to live by trusting only in ourselves and, and having a life apart from God, then we will come to nothing. And only when we come to the Lord with nothing can he give us everything. Here's what John Calvin says again as we close. What does the just do? He brings nothing before God except faith. Then he brings nothing of his own because faith borrows, as it were, through favor what is not in man's possession. He then who lives by faith has no life in himself, but because he wants it, he flies for it to God alone. See, when the righteous live by faith, only then do they get to truly live. Right, to experience life and joy and happiness and all of the best things that God wants for us can only be found through Jesus Christ and every attempt outside of him leads us to nothing. The righteous live by faith in the perfectly righteous, perfectly holy son of God. The one who said, I have come so that you may have life and have it what? Abundantly. I give my life for you so that you may have life with me. So will we lay aside our faith in ourselves and take hold of the gift of faith that God offers and place all of our trust, all of our hope in Jesus that we can experience life? Let's pray. Father God, you know who we are. You know where we live. Lord, your word at times hits us hard, bringing us to the end of ourselves, and only when we get there can we see what we need, Lord, and what we need is what you provide. Father, you have offered something so much greater than striving and working and ability and, 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 and anything that we can give to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this great gift of Jesus that you have laid before us, that we might take hold of him as he is taking hold of us, that we would place all of our faith in him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today is hymn 516, Like a River Glorious. The last verse, we may trust him fully all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. State upon Jehovah.